The scene opens on the backyard of a big white house. It's a hot day. A pool boy with rolled up jeans and a wide open shirt is cleaning the water's surface. Just inside, a 20-something girl ogles the man as he wipes his brow. From a window upstairs, her brother is also gazing down at the man, similarly enjoying the view. Then the siblings dash to the fridge, racing to fetch the pool boy a cold bottle of Coke. They leap over each other, skidding and jumping across the house to get this hot man a drink. But when they finally stumble outdoors, he's already got a Coke in hand. Their mother turns toward them with a little shrug and a smile that says, Too bad, kids. I got to him first. Discover Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. Great Coke taste with zero sugar. The ad was part of the so-called Unstereotype Alliance, an initiative by the United Nations, which partners with brands to try to get rid of gender-based stereotypes in advertising. For this ad campaign in South America, Coca-Cola decided to try something completely different. Two women and one man in the same family lusting after the pool boy. But after making the ad, they wanted to know how viewers would feel about it. Who does the ad resonate with? To get the answers to these questions, they turned to the company Affectiva. Affectiva, and more specifically its founder and CEO, Rana Al-Kayoubi, pioneered a software that can read the emotions on people's faces. So as people watched the ad, siblings lusting, the race to the pool boy, the mother's smile and the shrug, Affectiva software analyzed the viewer's face in real time. What it found was that the ad came in in the 90th percentile in terms of emotional engagement. And people who saw it one time remembered it which the software knew when viewers cracked a smile, even before the amusing scenes took place. By reading people's faces, the software was able to bolster the business case for more inclusive advertising. I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, we're going to be talking to Affectiva's founder, Rana Al-Kayoubi, we talk not only about how she's devoted her career to emotion-sensing software, but also about her new book. It's called Girl Decoded, a scientist's quest to reclaim our humanity by bringing emotional intelligence to technology. We reached her at her home in a suburb of Boston. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, Rana, you spent your career studying emotions and um, specifically how these emotions are communicated by our faces. So given the present scenario, the, you know, the, the drama that we're living through, in your eyes, you know, what's the world looking like right now? What Can you see a shift in the way that people are uh, responding through you know, facial expression? I think people are craving a connection more than ever. And this is where, you know, it really underscores that the way we communicate online strips us out of the very thing that makes us human, which is all these nuanced, rich, nonverbal communication signals, our facial expressions, our gestures, our hand movements, right? Um, and so I, I think people are yearning more than ever for this rich, very kind of humane connection. And we're trying to replicate it online with video conferencing and whatnot, but it's obviously not the same. 
before we get into you know discussing this in more detail, maybe you can give us a bit of background on yourself and how you came to this place of actually building or designing algorithms to to read human emotion. So I grew up in the Middle East. I was born in Egypt, and then my mm-hmm. parents um, kind of moved throughout the Middle East to Kuwait and Abu Dhabi um, for work. And so I grew up, you know, around, around the Middle East. And then I had the opportunity to go to Cambridge University to do my PhD in computer science. So I ended up in Cambridge and I ended up just kind of really hunkered down programming all the time. So I was spending so much time with my computer. And then I realized, wow, this computer, even though we're intimate, has absolutely no clue how I'm feeling. And even worse, it was the main mode of communication with my family back home. So that set Mm -hmm. me on a path of kind of asking, well, what if computers could understand human emotions? What would that look like? What would that unlock? I started very simple. I started training algorithms that could find a face and then would identify simple expressions like a smile or an eyebrow raise. And yeah, and that kind of set me on the path to bring emotional intelligence into computers. So your background is as an engineer. You trained as an engineer. I trained as a computer scientist, exactly. And and okay. it was it's interesting because I had to really kind of understand emotion science, the science of facial emotions and, and expressions. So I had to really immerse myself in in the psychology literature. Um, and ended up collaborating with a number of psychologists, namely in the autism space, because autistic people have challenges with nonverbal communication. Can you see a future for this where this will be used to help autistic people out there, not just purely from the point of view of a commercial uh, application where um, you know, we're able to second guess somebody's um, feeling or emotion at the time? Actually, if you think about it, we all fall somewhere on this spectrum. Um, Professor Simon Baring-Cohen, who uh, runs the Autism Research Center at Cambridge University, he has this theory that there's a spectrum. You know, on the one hand, you've got the empathizers who are really good Mm -hmm. with emotional intelligence and cluing into people. And then on the other extreme, you've got the systemizers and who tend to be like engineering minded, um, very systematic, very logical, don't really have a lot of people skills. And we all fall somewhere in between on that spectrum. And in fact, you change your location on that spectrum depending on things like stress, right? So if you're super stressed and kind of really inward focused and, you know, like, right, you don't have bandwidth to really focus on other people, you're going to be more on the systemizer spectrum. Uh, end, right? Or when we are interacting digitally, right? Over over Slack, right? Or over like digital communication. And you can't really see all of my nonverbals, which is over 90% of how people communicate, then that creates a lot of misunderstanding. And in a way, it renders us all functionally autistic. So um, I absolutely right. think there's a place for this technology in, in human-to-human communication. So for you know for me break it down how does a computer actually read emotion what is it that it needs to understand or see in order to determine how i'm feeling just from looking at my face and we're not talking about voice right it's purely it's purely my face we we do both my area of expertise okay. my phd was just focused on the face but at affectiva my company we we combine both but the way this works is basically 
as humans, and I'll focus on the face, as humans, we have uh, about 45 or so facial muscles and they move and combine to express thousands of different emotional states. And um, there's this thing called the facial action coding system, which maps every facial muscle movement into a code. So when you smile, it's action unit 12. When you furrow your eyebrows, like in anger or like, uh, you know, confusion, it's, it's action unit four. And so we use computer vision and machine learning to train algorithms to detect these different facial movements. So, um, you know, we feed um, the algorithm tens of thousands of examples of people smiling and people smirking and the more diverse, the better. And the algorithm learns what's common between all of these smile expressions and what's common between all of these smirks. Um, and so on. Um, and then so when it sees a new face that it's never seen before or a new expression, it's able to uh, infer with a degree of confidence which expression is it. And then we're able to take these expressions and with a little bit of information, map them into an emotional state, like whether you look like you're, you know, happy or surprised or disgusted. And are you trying this on different nationalities or are you particularly focused just in the States at the moment? Are you trying it in different countries? We have about nine and a half million facial responses from uh, almost 90 countries around the world. And the technology mm -hmm. is deployed in these 90 countries. So it's pretty global, which is mm -hmm. amazing because we have an amazing ethnically diverse, age diverse, gender diverse data set. We did a cross-cultural kind of exploration of, of how people around the world express emotions. And we wanted to look at it in the context of gender differences. So we found that in the U.S., women smiled 40% more than men. In France and Germany, women smiled 25% more than men. And in the U.K., we found no statistically significant difference between men and women. Like, <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to... just don't smile. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And I'm not going to comment on like whether, whether we saw anything at all, but it was so fascinating. And from all of this research, are you able to tell whether someone is telling the truth or not? So when a person is not telling the truth, there's these facial expression leaks, like they're called mm -hmm. micro expressions. They're very subtle, very fleeting, and they're often telltale signs that people are not telling the truth. You could theoretically do that with our technology. We steer away from all of that. We have very strong core values that we want to respect people's privacy. We're about bridging the communication gap. We're not about spying on people. So we just don't, we haven't applied the technology in that way. And companies like Snapchat have been some degree, obviously not to the same level uh, that you are, but to some degree have been experimenting with this already. I would imagine, and I'm just hypothesizing here, that Snapchat has helped users understand how facial recognition could be used, even just from the point of view of it being playful or fun. Mm -hmm. Is that true? No, I think you're right. I think, you know, every, you know, all of the kind of the applications with filters and manipulating, you know, like superimposing sunglasses or like hats or whatever. I'm, I'm not a Snapchat user, mm -hmm. but I've seen my kids kind of toy around with it a little bit. But I think people have become a lot more comfortable using their cameras and expressing themselves. Um, yeah, which in my opinion, just underscores how this technology in general is going to become ubiquitous. There's a new etiquette. Exactly. Well, we can't lie at the moment, can we? So previously, people didn't have their cameras on because they were pretending to be at home working or in the office or something. But <laughs> right. you know, we all knew that they weren't. They were in the car or on the train or something like that. Uh -huh. But right now, you can't lie. You're at home. That's it. So put your camera on. Yeah, I think exactly. There's a, new there's a new etiquette that's been defined around 
um, you know, working from home. And actually, I think it's also totally acceptable that your kids are running around the background or there's a cat on your shoulders. Exactly. Everything's okay. Which I, I love that, right? I, I think it's it's yeah. really humane, right? That we are now accepting of these imperfections. Yeah, my kids are kind of yelling around and <laughs> in the background and stuff. Your current reality is you run and you're CEO of a company called Effectiva. But prior to that, you were studying at um, MIT Media Lab. What I'm interested in partly is understanding some of the commercial applications that this software could be useful, but also some of your experience uh, to date. And something that um, I was interested in just touching on is the ex your experience with this Pepsi and Coke uh, study that you did at MIT Media Lab. Oh, yeah. So after my PhD at Cambridge, I joined MIT Media Lab as a postdoc and research scientist. And being at the Media Lab, we had access to the Fortune 500 companies we would show our technology, but they would ask questions, right? And so for a number of years, we had, Pepsi was one of the sponsors, and they, they wanted to understand, can we use this technology to quantify if people liked or disliked certain flavors? So we did this test where it was like a blind test, and we just gave people little cups of different uh, flavors that Pepsi was piloting. And, you know, you'd take a sip and we would record their expressions with, with their consent. And it was so fascinating because if you liked it, you would see a lot of lip smacking, a lot of like eyebrow raise, like your face opens up, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you didn't like it, you'd see a lot of like nose wrinkles, you know, moving your head backward. I'm making all these expressions. You can't see them, but <laughs> um, hopefully... Uh, you can imagine I them. I can hear them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it was just fascinating seeing people's subconscious, like immediate visceral responses to trying these different products. They were able to, using this technique, identify, you know, what the top flavors were and then take these decisions back to the product development team to prioritize what flavors made it to market instead of spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on product development and then it goes to market and then flops, Right. And that provided the impetus for spinning Affectiva out of the lab because we started to get so much commercial interest from these Fortune 500 companies like Pepsi and Gillette and Procter and & Gamble. And so, we, yeah, we started the company. And our, our first use case was, in fact, advertising testing, which I'm sure you're going <laughs> to... It's often the case, right? I mean, advertising is always desperate <laughs> to try and prove its worth. Everybody says, you know, they know that 10% of their advertising is effective. They just don't know which 10%. So we're, you know, everyone's always interested in these new technologies, whether it's brain scanning or, um, you know, eye, watching eye movement. So, yeah, I'd love to hear anything that, uh, that you've tried in the commercial world for marketing or advertising purposes. You're pretty kind of strict. I've heard like 50% of your advertising is effective. You just don't know which 50%. Uh, 10% <laughs> yeah, That was like in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, who knows? I mean, right. today we're talking about another completely different number. Yeah, but, but the point is the same, right? Like you invest all of this money into creating an emotionally engaging advertisement, but you don't know if it truly resonates with people outside of asking in a survey. Right. Surveys are very helpful, but they tap into a different part of the brain. And we're interested in kind of the visceral, subconscious, emotional responses to advertise moment by moment too. Mm -hmm. So the way this works is we ask people to turn their cameras on from their devices. You could be anywhere in the world on your laptop, on your phone, and you would get a, kind of a, a request to participate in a survey if while watching an online video ad. 
it could be a movie trailer, it could be a TV show, like any kind of online video content. If you say yes, the camera turns on, you watch, and then we are able to quantify moment by moment what your responses are. And then we aggregate all of that anonymously because mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're less interested in who you are and more interested in how you responded. And we have kind of a real-time dashboard where um, content creators and marketers can look at where did people resonate? And you can break it down by gender or ethnicity or age. So you can really triangulate what parts of the content resonated with which audiences. And, you know, our partners use this to make decisions around media spend. Uh, they make decisions around content. Sometimes they will green light or kill an ad altogether if they find that it, for example, is offensive mm-hmm. um, to certain audiences. They will use it to A-B test. We've done that a lot with movie trailers. Like you have different cuts of the movie trailers and um, they pick the one that resonates the most uh, with an audience. So this particular product is being used by a third of the Fortune Global 500 companies. Can you give us a specific example? Yeah, this is one of my favorite examples. It was actually one of the earliest ads we got to test on behalf of one of our partners, Kantar Millward Brown. They were testing these ads for Dove. And this particular one was titled, Talk to Your Daughter Before the Beauty Industry Gets to Her. It starts with um, this young, you know, young girl. And then it shows you like all of the different things this young girl is exposed to by the beauty industry. So, like, you know, flashy models, fashion, makeup. Weight loss, plastic surgery. And it's kind of disturbing, actually. You know, as the ad progressed, people were starting to look very negative, which was by design because the ad is supposed to kind of evoke these strong negative emotions of disgust and almost anger, which is totally fine because we know that the ads that are most effective are the ones that take you on an emotional journey. The problem with this ad is that it ended right away, like without giving people an opportunity to emerge back into a feeling of hope and that this could be resolved. Um, So a lot of the viewers um, just left with a very kind of overwhelmingly negative feeling, and they didn't stick around for the brand reveal. So they watched all of this ad about the beauty industry and then dropped off right before Dove came on screen, the actual brand. And so that was, of course, a lost opportunity in terms of you know, brand association. So we were able to identify the elements that worked in the ad, but also where it didn't really work as well as their other advertisements. I mean, the Millwood Brown has, you know, spent decades in the in the focus group uh, sector and um, conducting research. Had they previously conducted research in this way? They had not. In fact, um, they approached us and they said, we have previously tested this Dove commercial using our methods, which were mostly survey, but they Mm -hmm. had done also a little bit of brain research. And they said, if you are able to give us new insights around this ad, you know, we're going to partner with you, but also invest in the company. So the stakes were super high. We were about 
maybe 12 people at the time in the company. And it was all hands on deck. All we did was just run this, this project and make sure the results were compelling. And we ended up getting, you know, an investment from, from WPP, the kind of the mother company. And they are still one of our biggest partners and clients, you know, nine years on. I mean, if you're talking to WPP clients or to other people in the media world, how do you sell this? What is it that you say is the biggest differentiation between this and traditional research? I'm presuming it costs a lot more too. It actually, from a cost perspective, what is really cool about this technology is that it's scalable because unlike a focus group, you do not have to bring people into a lab or a location. You can literally leverage people's devices anywhere in the universe. But we've perfected the technology to be able to capture data even in these very uncontrolled conditions. I think the value proposition is that this is an opportunity to capture in an objective way people's visceral moment-by-moment responses. And you cannot get that with a survey. You can get similar data with brain sensors, but then the barrier to doing this is so much higher. It's so much more expensive. You still have to bring people into a lab and you have to set them up with these devices. And then it's like awkward because they don't feel comfortable. So have you seen any other campaigns or any other project you've done that have been particularly surprising? Anything particularly weird? I wouldn't say it's weird, but I, I just think it's really cool, actually. A number of brands have come together to kind of challenge stereotypes in advertising. Uh, it's called the Unstereotype Alliance. So Coca-Cola and Unilever and all, kind of all the big CPG companies are part of it. And they're using our technology to show how ads that challenge the typical stereotypes, gender roles, identity roles, ethnic roles, actually do better. They're more emotionally engaging. Even if you ask people and it's uncomfortable for people to disclose that they like the ad when you look at how they're responding, it's challenging what people expect to see. It's controversial, right? Like it's, it's the brand is taking a risk by creating these okay. ads that could potentially offend people, but they also want to change how people think about these things. And so by using our technology, they're able to quantify, well, who does really resonate with this ad and who does And are these ads more engaging or not? Are they more persuasive or not? Right. I'd never heard of the Unstereotype Alliance. Do you have clients coming to you that, um, you know, really want to use a campaign that they've produced for whatever reason? There isn't enough confidence behind it. Are people using this as a confidence booster? Definitely. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And it's often kind of trying to genuinely understand how will the audience resonate with this, especially if you as a creator, you're not in the target audience, right? So you can't really predict how people are going to respond to it. Um, So this gives you very real data on how that response is going to look like. And it's actionable too, because again, a survey gives you kind of a gestalt view of, of how people think of the ad. But with this data, it's moment by moment. So you can really triangulate on the exact scene where people were skeptical or they were offended or they found it hilarious, right? You can actually like triangulate where in the ad were the different responses. And so it makes it very actionable data. In your book, you talk about uh, your technology and it being used in focus groups in China um, where it wasn't quite as easy to get the same sort of response from participants. Could you uh, sort of summarize what happened there? 
Yeah, I'll never forget. This was right after we signed our big partnership with Cantar Millward Brown, and we got a call from their China team, and they were like, this technology doesn't work. I was like, what's going on? And they were like, we're seeing nothing from our Chinese audiences, nothing. So we, you know, again, like fire drill, everybody hands on deck, what's going on? And we realized that the way China was deploying the technology. Basically, you had kind of a, a moderator hover on top of the, the viewer's um, screen while a user or viewer is, is watching an ad. And we found that that basically had the effect of dampening everybody's expressions, which makes total sense because China is a collectivist culture and people are kind of reticent to share their true emotion, except if it's somebody they know really well. Um, they often kind of are, are a lot more reserved sharing how they feel with a complete stranger, which in this case, it was a, you know, a moderator who was a complete stranger. Um, so we modified the whole setup and we asked kind of our partners on the ground there to just let people watch the ads in their, you know, if they can't do it at home and they have to do it in a venue, then they would be, you know, in a room by themselves. And uh, very quickly, we were able to see high emotional engagement. We also, which was super fascinating, we found, and I can resonate with that because I grew up in the Middle East, this like super subtle smile. It's not a it's not a happiness smile, but it's almost like a social politeness smile. And it was, right. yeah, we saw a lot of that. And so we went back and retrained the algorithm on a lot more of these kind of Asian smiles um, to improve the accuracy of the algorithm. Facial recognition's come under a fair bit of criticism recently because of fears of privacy and surveillance and, you know, also around big tech, I think, and some concerns as to, you know, where this technology ends up. It may be that you start off with, you know, or Snapchat starts off with a very innocent and uh, very functional and beneficial use case. But, you know, where it ends up is somewhere completely different and used for... Um, you know, another purpose by government, by, you know, large corporation that isn't necessarily trying to, to aid in the education sector. This is one of our core values, like data privacy and, and respecting that this data is extremely personal is, is one of Affectiva's kind of founding uh, values. So everything we do is opt-in and consent-based and we care deeply about privacy, but we are also very big advocates of that as well. I am all for regulation. I, I don't want the technology development to be squandered altogether. And I don't think that's in society's best interest. There are so many amazing use cases of this technology. Again, we talked about autism, there's health applications, there's automotive safety applications. There's a lot where it can benefit society, but we have to put regulation in place to make sure that it's not used to discriminate against minority populations or, you know, people of color or women of color. We can't just sit back and say, oh, the legislation will, you know, it'll come and it'll come. I think we need to play a very active and proactive role. I agree 100%. The mental health space is an interesting one that um, in theory, if you're able to tell and read emotion and you're able to see whether someone is happy or, you know, whether someone is enjoying a commercial or not, you would also be able to tell whether somebody is sad or potentially, you know, suffering from mental health issues. And particularly in the space that we're in right now, I think that technology or that application of the technology is, could be incredibly powerful. I 100% agree. You know, as you interact with your device, that's an opportunity to capture your mental, yeah, your mental well-being, right? And 
develop mm-hmm. an algorithm that understands your baseline so that when you deviate from that, it can flag that to you, it can flag to a family member, to a physician. Um, What's also very interesting is, again, like online learning, health is moving to telehealth. You know, unless your situation is super critical, we're now being advised to stay home. And so telehealth is becoming front and center in the medical practice. And again, that's an opportunity to augment a doctor's information by saying, hey, by the way, like this person, this patient has been pretty depressed for the past four days. And here's here's the space they're in, right? So I think there's huge potential in the mental health space. It's something I'm very passionate about. And with with young kids yourself, you're not worried that, you know, all of this requires more time in front of a screen and and less time uh, interacting with friends or, you know, with other humans. Does it concern you with regards to your kids? It does. It does because I, here's why, because if you don't use a muscle, it atrophies. And so my concern is if we're not practicing social and emotional intelligence and we're using these skills, they're just going to go away. And so that's why I really think it's important that technology has or is built in a human-centric way so that when we are in front of our devices, yeah, we have to make eye contact. And yes, we have to like express ourselves with with using the richness of our face and that this matters when we do that it's a better more effective communication and that's why I worry about like just text-based communications or you know my son plays a lot of video he's 11 and he plays a lot of video games Mm -hmm. you know I, I do worry that he's not getting enough practice with applying nonverbal communication so in your view of the world, the, the more video and the more that we sit alongside somebody or, you know, looking at somebody through video, the better. But actually without video, it's more dangerous than it was. it is with. I personally believe we need to redesign online digital communication to incorporate these nonverbal signals. I mean, even if you think about our social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter, it's not designed with these signals in mind, right? And so you can be super mean on Twitter and it's very polarizing and because it's you send this tweet out there and you don't know the effect it's having. So I think if there were ways we would redesign all of our online, not all of it, but a lot of our online digital communication in ways that would incorporate how people just naturally communicate with one another, we would see a lot less of all of this kind of lack of empathy. Knowing what we know right now about the COVID-19 issue, assuming that this is the new reality, assuming that you know, with the, the way that we're working now and the way that we're going to work probably a year from now is going to be some degree similar to how we're working right now. How do you see your technology playing a role and aiding our lives in 2023? I think in a number of exciting ways. Uh, first, I really do think there's an opportunity to bring this kind of emotion AI to online learning and virtual events and virtual conferences to create more of a shared experience. For example, you know, if, if you're giving a keynote at the equivalent of South by Southwest that's now happening virtually, 
can you create a really compelling visualization that captures all of the responses of the thousand people that are tuned in to hear you, right? And it's amazing information for you as the presenter, but it's also equally incredible information for this remote audience to feel that they're part of a shared experience. So I think we're going to see a lot more creativity and innovation around creating these online virtual shared experiences and emotions play a critical role in that. Telehealth and mental health is another area where I think emotion AI has a lot of application. The third is social robotics. Um, you know, I keep envisioning everywhere around the world, um, you know, the frontline health workers are at risk. They're overworked just because there's so much demand. They're not necessarily focused on the ones who need the most help. So what if you had like social robots that could do the first level of diagnosis, right? They could do the initial testing and then have more experienced doctors and nurses and clinicians focused on the patients that need that the most, right? So I think I think there's an opportunity for a partnership between humans and robots to take off the load of some of the frontline workers. No, I agree. I I think in this time, there is a great application for what you're doing. And I think in this in this moment that I've heard, you know, referred to as the great reset, mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of people are understanding that we're all in this together, right? You're at home with your kids. I'm at home with my kids. Mark Zuckerberg is at home with his kids. We're all in right. this together. Um, right. And I think it also makes us aware of how interconnected we are and everything is. And I think if the reality is going to be that in, you know, in the near term, perhaps in the long term, we're going to be sitting a lot more behind video, then I think... I actually feel some comfort in knowing I might not be able to hide my emotions from my mum uh, when I'm speaking to her, that she would see that I'm, I'm not feeling great or I'm you know, having a bit of a bad day and she wouldn't have to you know, try and yank it out of me that would, <laughs> in the real world, you know, take about a week, um, but she'd be able to pick up on it earlier. And I think for a lot of people, that could be quite uh, a useful and powerful tool. I do appreciate you making the time for this chat. Thank you. And that concludes our episode today. Thanks to Rana for sharing her work with us. And one last plug, I did read her book, Girl Decoded, and I very much enjoyed it. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is the amazingly talented Rachel Swaby, with help from Elise Hugh and Alyssa Jung-Perry. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. We don't use emotion-sensing software, so you'll just have to tell us with your words, what you think. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield or read my book, The Trust Manifesto, what you need to do to create a better internet. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. Thank you so much for listening.